A crisis is a turning point. It's sort of the, the combination of danger and opportunity colliding. And, and sometimes a crisis can lead to disaster. Sometimes it can lead to new opportunities. And it just depends on how the crisis is resolved, uh, what the eventual result is. And, and I have this suspicion uh, that the church in the United States is at a crisis point. And I also suspect that we are at a crisis point and that we need to pay careful attention to the decisions we make in the next days. And, and because that's my conviction, I'm curious through scripture where the stories of other crisis points were to see what can be learned from scripture about crisis points. And this morning, I would like to take you back to the book of Joshua. You know where Joshua is in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, right? Number six on the list. And we'll start in the fifth chapter. I'm gonna read most of the verses from one to 12. This is Joshua five, most of the verses from one to 12. When all the kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites a second time. Verse four, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the warriors, had died during the journey through the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt. Although all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people born on the journey through the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the Israelites traveled 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the warriors who came out of Egypt, perished not having listened to the voice of the Lord. To them the Lord swore that he would not let them see the land that he had sworn to their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. Verse eight, when the circumcising of all the nation was done, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. 10. While the Israelites were camped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover in the evening on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. Haven't gotten to Jericho yet. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day they ate the produce of the land, and the Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. This is the word of the Lord. The story of Israel's desert wandering is not unfamiliar to us. Uh, God leads the people out of Egypt through the leadership of Moses. God establishes through the institution of the Passover feast, 
a celebration that will forever mark the Hebrew people as former slaves who have been redeemed by the blood of a lamb. You remember, the people were in slavery, but the final plague, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, was the straw that broke the Egyptian back. At that time, every Jew that painted the door frame of the house with the blood of a lamb, they were spared from losing their firstborn. And then God led them out to the shores of the Red Seas where he parted the waters, allowed his people to escape, and dramatically sealed the line between Egypt and Israel forever. Or at least that's what we all thought. One of the questions I want to pose to you is this. How do we know when we have really, actually escaped Egypt? How do we know? Israel, free from the bondage of Egypt, does not seem to have found their way to the freedom that was expected for them. I mean, we know part of the story of the wilderness wanderings. We know about the giving of the law and and the impatient people at the bottom of the mountain. Forty days into the process of receiving the law, Israel rebels, creates a golden calf. God is ready to start over with a different group, but Moses intercedes. The people grumble over a lack of water, lack of food. God provides water and God provides food in the form of manna and eventually meat in the form of quail. And so God feeds Israel. God leads them to the edge of the promised land. They choose to send 12 spies in to scope out the land to see if it's really possible for God to deliver this land to them. And 10 spies report back that Canaan is too powerful to challenge. We can't do it. And two spies say, we can prevail with God's help. And Israel decides that even though God has promised this land to them, he is unable to deliver it to them. This act of faithlessness results in God's rejection of a generation of people. Remember that God deals with Israel as a nation. His covenant is with the whole nation, which is different in some ways with the ways we interact with God today. So it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison. But still, we know this. Israel ends up isolated in the desert for roughly 40 years before they get a second chance to approach the promised land. By the time 40 years have passed, the men who left Egypt have all died and the opportunity to enter the land that God has promised to Israel is now presented to their children. That is a lot of lost time. And it's that lost time that makes me wonder if Israel really left Egypt at the Red Sea. I think you can make the case that even though Israel left Egypt geographically when they crossed the Red Sea, they didn't leave the slavery and the bondage that Egypt symbolized. They may have gotten out of Egypt, but they hadn't managed to get Egypt out of themselves. 
all the time that they wander around in the desert, they are compromised. They quickly resort to foreign gods. They grumble at God and Moses all the time. They refuse to believe that God can deliver on his promises. I'm not gonna judge these people. I don't know what their lives were like. I don't know how I would have reacted if my food supply was threatened, if the grocery store shelves were empty, if there were plagues or infestations of snakes and the like. Maybe those circumstances would have made me overly self-centered. Maybe, maybe all of my attention would have been focused on keeping my family safe. I suspect it would be easy to focus on my own needs and ignore the needs of people around me in times like that. I, I might even find a good way to rationalize my self-interest. Something like, well, well, you know I have a right to keep my family healthy because you know, if there's ever a war and we get attacked, someone will have to fight it. And, and it is so easy to rationalize self-interest, isn't it? I mean, our hearts are experts at creating excuses to help us do whatever we want to do. In this day, Israel is a band of self-interested nomads who refuse to believe God, who consistently and consequently are of no use to God. And so God is content to let them waste their lives in the desert until he can find a people he can work with. And God is counting on their kids to do what they would not do. It's interesting to me that it took about two years for Israel to go from the Red Sea to Kadesh Barnea, the place from which Israel sent the spies. It took about two years for them to escape Egypt and get to the front door of the promised land where they send out the spies and decide whether they're going to believe that God can deliver this land into their hands. During that time, Israel received the law, stumbled and fell, were sustained by God, and then after two years, they faced the ultimate test. Will they trust God with the future? Will they believe in him or not? And as I'm reading this passage, it occurs to me that we've been about two years in the wilderness as well. That's where we've been living. From my perspective, our wilderness wanderings were marked with equal parts of fear and self-interest. It may not be easy to admit, but we were never more self-focused than we were during this pandemic. We were worried about our health, the health of our loved ones, we were worried about our opinion of what the best course of action was and how regulations impacted us and our families. We wanted others to listen to the same experts we were listening to. We pretended to know what was best based on science we could barely understand. We separated ourselves from people and institutions who, do, who did not react the way we wanted them to react. We exerted extreme pressure to get things to happen the way we wanted them to happen based on what we thought was best for our own family. You say, 
Pastor, you're painting us all with a rather broad brush. Well, it wasn't only that. We, we had some good moments too. Israel had some good moments in the desert too. Miriam sang a great song in praise of God. Jethro gave Moses some good advice. The tent of the meeting was constructed, all true. But by and large, important things were lost. And it comes down to this. When the chance comes around to get back in step with God's mission in the world, you have to take inventory to see what was lost. And so in our passage, Joshua is given instructions to circumcise Israel again. The ritual that marked in their flesh who the recipients of the covenant were, well, that whole ritual had been lost in the wilderness. They, they forgot about identifying themselves as the people of God. Something of the identity of Israel was lost and I'm not sure that the second time they get to the promised land, they completely know who they are anymore. Joshua was instructed to celebrate Passover again. Passover was the celebration that reminded Israel that they had been delivered by God from Egypt. And it needed to be rehearsed again so that these people could know that they had been rescued they have to be rescued. But circumcision isn't a tattoo easily embraced. It requires days of healing to endure. During the days of healing, Israel was vulnerable to attack from their enemies. Could they rely on God to protect them during their days of healing? They were surrounded by enemies at the doorstep of Canaan. And you can't eat Passover unless you are the people of God. And so circumcision has to happen first. You can't even rehearse who you are until you accept the sign from God and demonstrate that you are his children in this day. So circumcision precedes Passover and the nation follows and does what is asked of them. And once the healing has taken place, once the Passover has been celebrated, the manna, the bread from heaven, stops. It's a crisis. It's a crisis. God's been feeding these people all along. He's been taking care of them, even in the middle of their rebellion, all the time they're in the wilderness. And now, once they've been marked as his again, once they've celebrated the Passover, demonstrating that they exist because of his deliverance, the manna stops and God no longer sustains his people from heaven. The sustenance will now have to come from the process of doing God's will. They're going to have to choose to rely on God and to pursue his mission now or they will perish. It's time for Israel to move into the land that God has promised them. God has sustained us through the pandemic. 
We've eaten manna from heaven. You might, you might call it the PPP loan. I mean, whoever thought that the United States federal government was ever going to send money to support churches and Christian schools, right? I mean, that might as well be manna for us. But we've also endured other kinds of great losses. Many who were once a part of our flock have been lost. Many of the relationships we relied on have been severely strained, if not severed. And I feel that we as a church, not just here, but the church in general in the United States is standing at Kadesh Barnea again, trying to make up our minds if we're going to enter the land of God's promise, if we're going to trust him to actually take us to the place he's called us, if we're going to actually take up the real mission of Christ, which is less concerned about our survival and more concerned about reaching all those people who Jesus loves with the gospel of life. Will we step into his mission or just hope that the manna will continue? But friends, the manna has stopped. We're at a crisis point. Will we trust God to enable us to prevail against the challenges we face. These things occur to me. Our primary witness to the world is the love we share with one another here in the body of Christ. Will we invest the energy to restore our fellowship? Will we reach out to those who lived on the other side of the opinion polls during the pandemic and repair the breaches in the wall? Will we do the work to knit this fellowship together? Will we do this because others need us to do it even if we do not? Will we do this because God calls us to do it even if we have created a comfortable bubble for ourselves and our own family? Will we do this because the rebuilding of our fellowship is foundational to our mission in the world? See how they love one another? You've heard the words from scripture. But what does the world see as it looks at the church of Jesus Christ in the United States today? Are they seeing, see how they love one another? Or some other picture? We've talked about rebuilding the foundation of prayer extensively. And it may be that based on what you've heard from the Spirit, you have dramatically increased your prayer life in your home. And I pray that that is true. But we still seem to be challenged at getting to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And there aren't all that many folks here on Sunday mornings for our prayer time either. Are we going to pretend that we can rebuild after the pandemic based on our own strength and our own vision of what is possible? Or are we gonna call on God to take us into the future that he has in mind for us? And are we going to rely on his strength and his direction? Because if we're gonna do the latter, if we're going to rely on his strength and his direction, then we will have to pray. We will have to pray. 
I think the last thing I have to say to you perhaps is the most difficult. A recent poll of Christian churches suggests that almost all of the people who are planning to return to church after the pandemic have already done so. Church attendance nationally now is plateauing. That means that we're a smaller church, we're a smaller workforce than we were previously. You can't do more with less people, that's for sure. And we may not be able to sustain all the programs that we were running before the pandemic struck. And that leaves all of us firmly at Kadesh Barnea. We might look at the task ahead, the task of rebuilding, the task of embracing others, the task of knitting the fellowship together, the task of investing in God's mission in the world and say, we could say, the task is too big. I don't have the energy. I don't think we can do it. I don't think God is able to take us into this promised land. The cities have big walls. There are giants in the land. And we can walk away defeated and head back into the desert, into the wilderness. But friends, loved ones, there is only slow death in the wilderness. It may look safe, it's not. There is only slow death in the wilderness. There's another choice. We can choose to trust God. We can advance believing God will help us. We can believe that God will take whatever we have, deliver on his promise, use us in the world to bring his kingdom and press ahead. I think you remember Jesus said this another way in the Gospels. He said, feed these people here. And his disciples says, what do you mean? It would take like years of wages to feed all these people. And he says, well, what do you have? And the disciples say, well, we got like, we got like five loaves of bread and we got a couple fish. And Jesus said, bring me what you have. And the disciples bring Jesus what they have. And he prays. And then he just starts breaking the loaves, breaking the fish. And what looks like not enough is translated into the superabundance of God. And you may look around and say, I'm not sure we're enough. I'm not sure what we have is enough. The task is too big. The, the enemy is too powerful. All of those things don't matter. Because we've heard that nothing is impossible with God. That he's able by his grace and mercy to use even us to bring his kingdom. If we will trust him. If we will abide in him. If we will believe that he can deliver on the promises of his word. He invites us. Pray for workers to be sent into the harvest. Are we praying? for the help we need to do what we think God's calling us to do in the world. He invites us to take him at his word, to when the load is heavy, to cast our cares on him and to know that our, our youth can be renewed. I'm looking forward to having some youth renewed myself. 
but we can trust him to bring the resources and the strength and the vision and all that we need to accomplish his mission in the world because after all, it's his mission, not our mission. If we as a church get focused on our own survival, that is the recipe for disaster. That will kill us. If we as the church choose rather to focus on the mission of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see God's kingdom come in our community, then we know that God will provision his mission and we will get to enjoy the abundance of the Spirit because we're walking in step with him. We either will be people who waste our lives in the desert who are no use to God, or we will be his ambassadors proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and lifting Christ high. That's the definition of a crisis. We're gonna choose where we're gonna go. I would ask that you pray with me along those lines for the next several days. I think we have to make choices individually and we have to make choices corporately of who we will choose to be. And I wanna make sure that by Easter we've made our choice, that we've proclaimed our allegiance. It took these guys some time to make their choice while they're at the Jordan River. There was time for circumcision, there was time for healing, there was time for the preparation of the Passover. Interesting that Passover is just a few days away from us now. And that emerging from Passover, they make a choice. And you know what comes next in the passage, right? You know they're gonna step into the land and they're immediately gonna hit this giant walled city that they have no chance of defeating, right? You know what's coming next. They're gonna walk over and they're gonna see these giant walls and, and they're gonna say, how are we going to attack Jericho? How's that gonna happen, Lord? I mean, you've called us into this land, you've told us you're giving this land and, and we don't have a ghost of a chance. And then God says some things that seem really ridiculous to them. March around the walls, day after day, some torches, some trumpets, and I'll fight for you, God says. And every child knows the result, right? And the walls came tumbling down. We should have those kind of giant expectations of what God will do for us when we step out in mission with him. But our expectations of what we need in the wilderness I pray that we will choose to trust God to step forward in mission with him to listen for his voice to do whatever is necessary personally to make myself eligible for Passover when you hear that think Embrace whatever repentance I must embrace so that I am eligible for communion on Easter Sunday. Ready to receive the sacrament of God's grace again. And purpose in our hearts to follow him. 
I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and let's pray as they come. Father, thank you for your word today which challenges us. There, there may be ways, Lord Jesus, that um, we have gotten off the pathway and don't even know it. There may be ways that we've become self-absorbed and we don't even know it. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would search us and know us and see if there's any offensive way in us and lead us in your pathways. Help us by your Spirit to discern what our steps ought to be. Show us clearly the mission ahead of us and give us the confidence to trust you to step into the promised land that you have for us. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me? and We'll sing a closing song. As we sing this, it's time to invite the Spirit to challenge you, to speak to you, to make sure that you're ready to step forward, to do what needs to be done, to be ready, so that we can step forward together in our kingdom. Christ, 
And so there's a generation lost in the wilderness. And I don't want that to be our legacy, that we're a generation that starting from now is lost in the wilderness because we won't trust the promise of God. We're going to have to lean in. We're going to have to pray together. We're going to have to seek His face if we are going to be of any use to God at all. And if we are not of any use to God, we shouldn't expect His provision because He provides for His mission in the world through us. And that's where the promises of God come. We must be a generation that will seek His face or we can just expect to wander in the desert. Let's choose something more than that. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us from able to deliver on all of his promises. He is completely trustworthy. And may you choose to believe his promises and step into the glorious future he has for you with all the saints of God as we live to see his kingdom come according to the will of God. Amen. <laughs>